All right, here we are. Another day, another screen, another lot and lots of scolding heat to get to, my friend. Yes, so many things going on. There's always so many things going on. There's a mm. hot house, hot house Oof. of Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah, Never that's heard. a good, great tease for the story. We're going to talk about the latest in that sort of uh, epic drama of two actors that apparently could not find their way in holy matrimony. And, Burning uh, down the house. Woof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that is one hot civil courthouse over in Virginia. That the we house get. is burned. Absolutely. Talk about but, California uh, fires. <laughs> on the East Coast. But speaking of hot actors, we're very excited by our interview that we have for you this week. Another very talented, very hot actor, our, our, our Cuban Johnny Depp. I'll go as far as to say. Oscar Tory, <laughs> man, we have to call Oscar up and tell him <laughs> you've dubbed him the Cuban Johnny Depp. The Cuban Johnny Depp. <laughs> we have to bring him back just to get his response on that. Yes, 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 yes. What a great guy, uh, man! Absolutely fantastic interview. We're so excited to have had Oscar on the show as our guest, who is on uh, speaking of hot on a very hot series for stars, uh, which we want to definitely plug a few times for Oscar since it just premiered on Sunday, which is the the new series Gaslit. Gaslit. Not mm. to be confused with gaslighting. No. But Elon Musk did all the all the way to Twitter. Oh gosh, Twitter. yes. Yeah, that first story. But, you know, we always do it. Uh, we should mention who we are. J.L. Martinez. Kevin Sharpley. And this is Screen Heat Miami brought to you by. Cinevision. Kijik Multimedia. Chemical. And the Miami Media and Film Market, which is currently open for registrations. Our 12th conference is coming this summer, July 21 to the 24th, the Biltmore Hotel. Get your registrations. They are hot and going fast. Fast, fast, fast. fast. It's missing a fast. We got to get into this first story because this sale happens so quickly, right? We're talking about the, the major story. Wow. I mean, what a quickly evolving storyline, even for the digital age, going from Elon Musk buying 9% of the company, going to join the board, no longer wants to join the board. Did it. Now you know, I'm going to buy the whole thing. Yeah. Hostile takeover and just make it wasn't them an even hostile. Well, I mean, that's what wasn't hostile. <laughs> Corporate lingo is pretty aggressive, though. They hostile takeover, poison pill. I mean, you know, murder. She wrote. I mean, they, I they said they were going to do all of that hostile and po poison, yeah. and there was no, no, there was no bath salts in that water. Yeah, I thought Hollywood was dramatic, but fuck, I think <laughs> Wall Street's got a one up on us this time. That turtle just turned over and spread its legs. Mm, so, what, do you, what? What's your take on the whole? Uh, you know, I guess we, we can call it a benign takeover, whatever you want to call it, of, of the company being bought by the single richest man in the world. Yeah. So Twitter was already, I mean, it, that business model just was not doing well anyway. So I don't really think they were going to do any better than that deal, to right. be honest. Hmm. And I don't know, man, you know, it's split down the middle. There's, you know, these Elon Musk's Muskites. I don't know what you call them. Elon Muskites that just love Elon Musk. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with him. I mean, mm. he certainly, I mean, you could even say single-handedly pushed electric cars. And mm. without him, we would not be at this point, this moment with electric cars. And so that's certainly something that will help to push towards yeah. 
saving the planet, saving mm. you, know, you know the earth from climate change. So you know you have those you know really good things going on, and then you have them calling the guy in the in the cave. You know when he was saving the kids in the cave, he called him a pedo. I mean, right? You know, yeah. You, <laughs> I mean, look. I he, mean, which, which side of Elon Musk is going to show up? We don't know. Yes, I mean he has been dubbed an eccentric billionaire, probably for obvious reasons, and he does have his his mood swims. Maybe um, some would say his temper tantrums. I know that he does express himself quite <clears throat> um, honestly. Let's just say on Twitter. Uh, he is very vocal about some of his opinions, and he does get into the world world of controversy quite often. I think the last one he uh, he uh, he kind of took a shot at uh, Bill Gates, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and posted the, the the new pregnant man emoji next to a picture of what looked like maybe a pregnant Bill Gates in uh, as as sort of a, a response to him shorting. Uh, Tesla stock. So he shorted us. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, if somebody's going to come at me. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to make him a pregnant emoji. I mean, come on. Yeah. What else don't, are you going to do? Don't mess with my business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you know, you you just don't know which side he's going to be on. And Twitter is, although that business model, you know, was not, you know, Twitter just wasn't making a ton of money. Um, it is. It has been a de facto town hall is what they're calling Twitter. So, you know, there's a lot at stake, but there's something else. And I saw this, it's not a meme, it's the fact. So now the richest man owns Twitter. Mm. Second richest man owns the Washington Post, mm. you know, and on and on and on. So out of, and I'll, I'll come back, you know, probably after the jump with that exact quote, but you know, the top media is owned by the top 10 richest men in the world. Right. And they, they you know, that's, now, that's saying a lot. I mean, it's, it's the, yeah. the richest people in the world, which happen to be men and they happen to be white men. Mm. So mm. I don't know. Now, now, that being said, look, traditionally, I mean, media companies have been owned by quite wealthy entrepreneurial types. I mean, if you go back to the movie Citizen Kane and, you know, that kind of being loosely based on William Randolph Hearst, which had his own sort of print. He wielded it empire, like a weapon. Yeah, he, he did. It like a weapon. And he, he definitely hurt, you know, very publicly hurt the chances of, uh, you know, the, the, the one of the greatest directors in Hollywood history. Right. Uh, from from making any significant movies after Citizen Kane. And so, you know, could that have been sort of the grandfather of the age of Twitter where he said something? He made a critique of a very powerful figure and the backlash was was fairly strong even back in those days. Yeah, all I can say is we have to sit back and see what's going to happen. Mm. That's <laughs> yes. We have no. to ride this rodeo. No, we, yeah, not just because to. it's in Texas. You know, Elon Musk is in Texas, but he all here yes. we go. Yeah, no, it, you're right, and and maybe it's, it's part of that that Texas Lone Star spirit that got into him. But one <laughs> one major figure that is endorsing him is actually Twitter's co-founder Jack Dorsey, who gave a very strong endorsement of this purchase by Elon Musk. So you know, he does have some of the higher wallet. His wallet gave a big endorsement. What? <laughs> something he's, he is he does stand to make a chunk of change yes make his bank account call him <laughs> his accountant called up and said yo you need you need that elon money <laughs> long long cash yes yes no so, no no but you know what jack dorsey I, I found to be pretty much on the up and up so and maybe not necessarily driven but you never know 
some people driven by the green. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. You never know. You, everything with a grain of salt, my friend. Everything <laughs> with the, yes. You have to take it all with a grain of salt. And um, like I said, we're just going to see what happens. Look, man, I was pretty pissed that I didn't get a boring company flamethrower. I've mm. been trying to get one of those f- for the longest time. Maybe you'd have a Twitter flamethrower. Because that's what they go. do on Twitter. They just throw throw those flames. Man. Mm. They say Twitter is for hate. That's what the... <laughs> well, I think uh, Jimmy Fallon made a joke that it's kind of like YouTube videos uh, without the videos, just the comments. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, gosh. So, um, yeah, I think that it's going to make an interesting next few months. Obviously, Hollywood has chimed in. So much of movie promotion now has to do with social media advertising and plugs and promos and hashtags. And so we'll see how media companies react and what the new revenue model is going to be for Twitter. Are they going to stay as an ad supported platform? Are they going to switch to some kind of a hybrid model, a subscription model? Who knows? Who knows where where it can go in the next few years, uh, but it's going to be an interesting journey, nonetheless. Yeah, Elon knows how to make money, so let's see if he. That's true. He is he is a golden boy when it comes to those kind of businesses. So he might he may have some ideas that he's not quite ready to share with the public and or on Twitter just yet. Give me a flamethrower. <laughs> there you go, but um, but yeah, speaking of things that um may have needed a flamethrower or maybe need something else, but are trying to make a comeback is, is our beloved art house theaters. And love uh, it. Our yes, theaters. Yes. They want to definitely get to this story be, just before our interview with the great Oscar Tory. But uh, this is from variety um, about how art houses are fighting to survive the pandemic. Uh, and the quote being, everyone says it's dead, but it never is. And that was from Greg Lemley. Uh, who a lot of you folks on the West Coast may know as the owner of Lemley Theaters, which is one of the most popular theater chains in Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the death knell of the Art House Theater, Mm. every five years, you know, they're like, this is it. This is done. And then someone else comes up with a model that works. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, this also harkens to what's going to happen with theaters in general. And, you know, we're going to talk about that after the jump. But, you know, I think one of the problems, they're making fewer movies. So we could just say that from the start. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's going, it's a, it's a, you know, kind of double ellipse. It's going in, in two different directions in that the cost of making movies has, is lower. But Hollywood is making fewer movies because they're putting more money into the tentpole movies mm. and going for those big home runs. Hmm. So do you get the quality, the quantity of quality movies enough to put people in the theaters of those art house cinemas is one thing. The second thing is, of course, people are really comfortable in their own cinemas, their own home cinemas that people are having now, 8K TVs and all. Um, And I I think, you know, there's that sweet spot is what can you do to entice people to come out now? Going to the movies is still one of the cheapest date, family, whatever you want to call it, experiences. Right. A lot of content creators are going to the streamers and, mm-hmm. you know, going in that direction, which is also putting, you know, this kind of stranglehold on movies. That's right. what it is. You know, I think it's just become the, the marketplace has become a little bit um, more challenging 
But oftentimes when you have those kind of challenges, and especially when you have, you know, like this capitalistic society of America, that's where the sweet spot is, where you can find, you know, this kind of magic that, you know, maybe it's create a situation where, you know, more movies are produced that are then connected to this loose chain of uh, art house theaters or, you know, create experiences right. there at the art house theaters that just bring more people out. But I think it needs to be more of a holistic approach. And right. so, you know, it'd be, I support my art house theaters. You know, I'm, I'm on the, 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 uh, the masthead down at the Miami beach cinema tech, which is now old cinema. Yes. Yeah. Big yeah. supporter of the Miami beach cinema tech when it, when it first opened a uh, big supporter of O cinema. I'm a big supporter of independent oh. cinema because independent cinema yes. is where a, a lot of the magic starts. And a lot of the big filmmakers started there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, part of the magic of the independent art house cinemas is this idea of curation, right? And when you're watching all this content, all this available titles on a streaming service, you, you don't really know. Sometimes the audience wants to be kind of told or suggested this is quality this is something worth your time and when you're again when you're sitting even if you're in a beautiful home theater with an 8k uh screen and surround sound you don't have anyone really telling you or giving you that kind of excitement and energy like this is a movie you have to go see and i think that art house cinemas in particular you know are an escape not only from the sort of endless stream of uh bingeable content but it's also something that's different from, you know, the bigger fair, right? These huge superhero and tentpole franchise movies. This is something that, you know, if you go to a really good art house cinema like the O Cinema, that, you know, folks like Kareem Tapsch and his partners uh, are going to curate something special and interesting and memorable. Because I think part of what gets those audiences back is a memorable experience. Like you said, you know, families and groups and date nights are starting to happen again. So, you know, like you said, it is one of the cheapest alternatives to going out, even though a lot of these art houses have gone a little higher end in terms of the food they serve. You know, now they have full bar packages. Uh, and so it is a mini luxury experience, but still not as bad as going to like, you know, a really good steakhouse or a nightclub, but it's something special. And then at the end of the day, you're being told a story and then you have a story to tell. I always say, you know, it's thanks to the old cinema that I'm actually married with three kids. And, <laughs> and you know, that's a hell of a story. I mean, my first date with my wife was at the old cinema in Wynwood at the original one. Um, and, you know, not to plug myself, but it was a short film that I had produced that the director had four walled. And so I got to kind of play a cool producer that night, but it kind of worked, I guess. <laughs> and so, yes, the beautiful Sylvia and our three four kids. walls, three kids. Yes. And we had a story to tell. We actually took a nice picture of it just before. Unfortunately, they shut it down uh, with our two kids in front of the O, the original O. So always a shout out to Kareem for that. But again, I just think, you know, and I'll get off my soapbox after this. Since the dawn of time, since our earliest ancestors were telling stories at night in groups under a flickering fire, there is a almost a, 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 a natural organic nature to watching cinema, a story unfold in a group setting. And I think it's carnal and I think it's part of human nature. And it's not something that can be easily done away with. And so... Yeah. That said, and, go support your local art house. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of these movies aren't going, you know, they don't 
go to the Cineplex and I'm just going to say two things. Um, there's a movie that I love, Snowpiercer, which mm. John, um, Bong Joon-ho, you know, went on to win an Oscar for uh, his following film, which is called Parasite. Actually, he had a Korean film in between, uh, right. Parasite. But I really did learn of Bong Joon-ho from, you know, Snowpiercer, which actually then became a show. Mm. And so when you think about it, you know, you can make great discoveries. But Snowpiercer, Weinsteins, the Weinsteins bought Snowpiercer. Mm. Um, they bought the rights to Snowpiercer and Bong Joon-ho refused to cut some scenes. So it didn't fit into a regular uh, theater uh, cookie cutter. Mm. So it, it had to go to the art house cinemas. And I remember Snowpiercer broke records for every art house cinema. I, I could even say, of course, at, at the time, um, um, the Miami Beach Cinematheque, they had to keep uh, making weekend after weekend for it, and it broke records just in the art house cinemas. But there's a so that that there's a lot to be said about that, you know. But there's a pendulum, and this was not necessarily something that we said we're going to talk about, but we have to talk about it, and maybe we'll talk about it after the jump. Netflix just posted. It, in, within 10 years, its first net loss of subscribers. Right. It's been a decade before they posted a, a loss like mm. this. And so there is this kind of pendulum. I mean, Netflix, they still haven't won an Oscar. They own a lot of money at it. Mm. And so a lot of these, the fare that goes into these art house cinemas are uh, the testing grounds, the proving grounds, the the ways for filmmakers to really get their legs up under them, right. and so. No, you're you right. You got to yeah. save these theaters. You, you, know, you have for, to because you're right. Because things like Netflix are great, but and they've gotten a lot of opportunities for stories that may have not been told otherwise. But I don't believe in this idea of making movies by algorithm. I think that you know that's never been something that has worked long term. And I think that unfortunately, you know, based, basing everything on the number of clicks and subscribers and views is not always the mark of quality. And, and I think you're right. What art houses do is it gives that extra prestige factor to films that otherwise wouldn't get noticed, but should. And then when they eventually do make it onto one of these platforms, it has a reciprocal effect. Yeah. But we are going to talk about Netflix and animation. That'll be out yes. of the jump too, which has to do with their numbers. So, or we don't know if, you know, it's a causality to that, but knee uh, jerk reaction, but uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> something to that effect. Yeah, we'll, um, but we'll, uh, yeah, we'll get we'll to talk that. about it after this, this incredible interview. One yes. Of our best. Oscar Tory has been one of our best. So we're excited to bring you the great Oscar Tory. I don't think we've ever gotten into the detail into the weeds on what exactly Kijik multimedia means. So we're going to have to give that origin story. Yeah, maybe. Maybe <laughs> not today, though, because I'm not really today. excited to hear the origin story of Oscar. Oscar yes. Tore. Yes. Well, I started with my parents one day, you know, a couple <laughs> of drinks. And <laughs> yeah. y- y- tu sabe. Y- tu sabe. One of them won. History. <laughs> one of the swimmers won. <laughs> yeah. I, you don't realize every human being essentially won the lottery the minute they were born. Right? <laughs> you think yeah, about big it. lottery. Big the odds lottery. of that. Yeah. Absolutely. 
And you see someone, you go, how did he win? Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wish that one wouldn't have won. That, yeah, that was, that was a runner-up at best. You look at him and you go, thank God for those who lost. Uh, and that's the one that won. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of that guy that was uh, that was harassing Mike Tyson on the plane yesterday. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, he almost lost. Yeah, he lost. <laughs> oh, he lost. He, he got a beat <laughs> he didn't have a down. <laughs> he got a, a real beat down. What an idiot. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, life in the streets, as we say. <laughs> well, is that, is that like that quote Mike Tyson has? I don't know if you guys heard it, that social media has made people forget that you can actually get punched in the face or something like that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, All the social yep. media. You're right. <laughs> so he, he lived up to his quote. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has. Yeah. I know you guys, you guys shared a credit. We're going to get into some of your work on the <laughs> hangover series. Um, but yeah, that's, that was a great one, but we definitely want to, as Kevin alluded to start from the beginning. So, you know, now that we know uh, how you were conceived, we can move forward into uh, sort of that, you know, that first inkling of when you thought that acting could not only be a passion, but also a career for you. Right? Where were you born? I was born in Miami. I was born and raised in Miami, right where you guys are. Okay. Bring it back. That's right. Yeah. Uh, born and raised there. That's great. Uh, where that's are you amazing. at now? I'm in L.A. Okay. I'm in L.A. I've been in L.A. for uh, 20 something years now. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. so it's 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 been a while that I'm that I'm here. Did but you Miami there always for feels. I'm sorry. Yeah, I moved out here for the business. I started acting in Miami, and then after a few years of acting in Miami, I felt like uh, if I wanted to progress in my career, I had to move to to you know where I was at. And at that moment, it was at that time it was only L.A. New York wasn't wasn't happening unless you wanted to do a theater. Right. But what I was pursuing was film and television, and that. That will be LA. It was the only place. Mm. Honestly, Miami, there was nothing going on when I left. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the that's the place where it happened. So you made that you made that transition. But you know, growing yeah. up in Miami, I mean, did you you started to work first in Miami or you, at least you were did you train in Miami? I trained, I start no, I started working my uh, Miami was a great place. I mean, I look back and I, I always tell this to people that Things don't make sense while they're happening. But when you look back 10 years later, 20 years later, you look, you see that everything, there's an order to everything. And it had to happen that way. Even though while it's happening, you're like, what the hell is going on? Am I going to survive this? Am I? And some people quit. Some mm -hmm. people obviously never have the chance to be able to, to have that perspective of, of time. But I, I was the perfect place. Um, why? Because when I first started acting in Miami, there were a lot of, there were a few indie projects going on, indie films. And I was blessed to, to you know, to play, to play lead roles on these films. So at the same time, it was, you know, it's where I was learning. I was learning and where I got confidence of like, okay, I can do this. I can, I can play a lead in a film and, you know, I can carry a film. And so I, I came with that. When I moved to L.A., I had tape. I had a strong demo reel. Wasn't any credits that people would recognize, but it was well done. It was well crafted. It wasn't like, oh, this is, you know, this is, don't show this to anybody type of thing. It, it was good. 
And um, that opened doors for me. I had made some contacts while working in Miami of people that had moved to LA. I, I was lucky enough that the first real role in a film that I had, that was, that was a lead role. Um, it was a movie called Suicide Blonde. And they ended up doing all the post in LA. And a lot of the people from the movie moved to LA. So I ended up coming to LA a couple of times to do ADR because I had some sound issues. And uh, with that, it also made me feel com more comfortable going to LA because I knew some people. And um, so that, that was my initially what you know brought me to LA. And I was at a point in Miami where I'm like, okay, I've done everything I can here. And um, it started to slow down in Miami, started to slow down. And I had a strong demo reel. I had done these projects that some were coming out. And I'm like, okay, people told me you should take advantage of, of this momentum and go to LA with the, with this reel and, and, you know, all these projects coming out. They came out. They didn't really help me, the projects, when they came out. Um, in LA, it didn't help me in LA. But it, it prepped me for a lot of things. Because um, I, I, one of them was a movie called Libertad, which in Miami was a big deal because it was about a political prisoner in Cuba who escapes on a raft. And that movie in Miami was, was huge. It played, um, it played at the James L. Knight Center. Mm. Um, the city sponsored the screening of the film. They were in a real, really... Um, should I say, um, stressful time. The, there was a Cuban band, Los Bambams, who was playing in Miami, who came to Bam -bam, Miami. Yeah. And that was really controversial because people that don't know this, they go, well, they're musicians, whatever. But the, whatever they get paid went to the Cuban government. They weren't getting paid directly. The mm. musicians are getting paid crap. Um, so in a way, they like it or not, they're representing the government. If you're getting, if you're employed by the government, you're getting paid by the government. So it was a big controversial thing in Miami. The film that I had done was the opposite of what the, what you know this event stood for, meaning that it was you know a film about what the Castro regime uh, government regime. had done, yeah, mm -hmm. had done, and and all that. So the city, the movie played at the same time. There was a lot of publicity. CNN covered it. Um, so all those little things, you know, got me. Uh, it was like a training. To be in front of a camera, talking to the media, all those, th all those things that, you know, once you're, you're having a career and hopefully some success, it's important to know. And, and you know, I was thrown in the, in the heat of things because it, it was a controversial subject matter. So it had to do with politics. And when you're talking about politics, you have to be very careful what you say and, and all that because it, you're, it's, a, it's borderline you're crossing from being an actor to... To go into an activist, an activist, and and, right. and most people don't want to hear what an actor has to say about politics because, to be honest, we're not we're not experts in the subject. But right. in my case, I spoke, I spoke about the project, I spoke about the film, and I spoke about my heart, what it meant to me. My my grandfather had been in political prison in Cuba, oh, wow. and a lot of my family members and some have been killed in Cuba. So, on because of Castro, so. I spoke about that. 
Right, which, which again, like when you mention actors getting too much into politics, usually it's a field that they have no personal connection to. They're just commenting based on what they think or what you know they feel it should be. In your case, it's a little different. So it's you, like a lot of the Cuban exile community, had personal ties to all the horrors and things that happened in Cuba uh, during the revolution. So and I grew up seeing, I grew up seeing how, and, and people don't understand this, and they go, oh, "Cubans are so passionate about being anti-Castro," blah blah blah. But what happened is that I grew up with a mom who was separated from her dad and she met him in her 30s. Um, I grew up with a grandmother who had total nervous breakdown because she lost her husband was in Cuba and they ended up getting divorced. That marriage was, was horrendous. I grew up with the fear that he might be killed any day. So you, Think of it as a little kid growing up, and, and that's part of what's forming you. Yeah. Obviously, when you become a man, a grown person, you're, you're passionate about this, and you yeah. definitely have a, a strong feel about how you feel about this. Mm. Yeah. Which no, is absolutely. important as an actor to take it back to what this interview is about. <laughs> yeah. You, you have to have a point, a strong point of view, and something you're fighting for. Right. Yeah. And some yeah. emotional triggers that you can access, right? When totally. you're getting, yeah. So it, it does make sense in terms of your trajectory personally as an artist as well. And, you know, obviously that's always something that's in the headlines, whether it's Miami, LA, you know, last summer with the whole Patria y Vida movement, we saw how, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of sparked. And that was, you know, obviously a piece of music that came from uh, Cuban artists and it just kind of created something. So I think sometimes art and storytelling has a way to weave itself into the political sphere but sometimes i feel like it can be done more organically than others uh and i think that was definitely the case and especially again you with your personal connections to you know your parents and your family having gone through that so um you know in terms of of miami so now you've got this training you kind of hit the ceiling right in miami mm -hmm. it's like this is as big as i can get this is as far as i can go without leaving the 305 so it's time to make that transition did it feel because I, often i hear some actors say you know i go from being the big fish in the small pond to being the small fish in the ocean of Hollywood. Did you feel like that? Did you feel like you kind of had to take a step back and start over in a certain sense? Or was it just sort of a continuation of your, of your art and your career when you transitioned to LA? Um, well, looking back, I mean, I have to be realistic. I, I moved to Miami is a small place. There are a few casting directors. They get to know you very quickly. If you, if you're, if you're talented and you're good, they get to know you're working. You come in and you read for a lot of things you're right or not even right for. In L.A., there are hundreds, not a thousand casting directors. And the project's going on. And it's it's hard. Even when you're established and you have a career, it's hard to get in for all these projects that you might be right for. Mm. Forget about when you just moved and you don't know anybody and you might not have the best representation when you're starting out. It, all those things make it very difficult and I think it's at the point where I saw a lot of people quit as well. People who had moved from Florida or different places. I saw them. They stuck around a couple of years. Their expectations weren't realistic, meaning they thought they were going to make it really quick. That, the, you know, the talent, something you learn really quickly here is that talent is not everything. Yeah. When you get here, people that get here and I see actors and artists who are very cocky in a way. It's like, oh, no, nah, you know, and then you, you soon realize, wait a second, that's not everything here. In fact, that guy that's working all the time sucks, but he's working all the time. 
<laughs> but then you get to meet that person and you go, well, okay, I see why that person's working all the time. That person also understands that this is a business. Yeah. And you might not think that they're that good, but they do their work, you know? I mean, that yeah. when I said sucks, it's from the perspective of the, the cocky actor who's looking at it from the outside. That's like, why is he working? I'm better than he is. Why is he working all the time? But then you get to meet the person or meet people who have worked with this person. He goes, well, this person is a very professional. This person, you can count on them. This person, yeah. you know, is doing the legwork. This person knows a lot of people because he, he's, you know, he networks. And you go, okay, that's why this person works all the time. Yeah. There's, yeah, the, the there's a lot to be said about the work ethic. And I think 100%. a lot of people kind of lose that, lose sight of that. And, you know, I started in front of the camera and I started here. So, you know, I know all the casting directors. I've booked a lot of work in front of the camera, but I transitioned behind the camera. I run a production company now, a multimedia company. I've worked with a lot of people, a lot of names. And one thing that's consistent, I can tell you, look, there's a lot of talent you know, and it's varying in varying degrees, mm -hmm. but dependability, you know, knowing that you can count on that person every time that they're going to do what they say they're going to, they're going to do that. They're going to, you know, come in prepared, ready to go. That speaks volumes. It speaks yeah. volumes. And so that's a, the other side of the business. A lot of people, not just actors, but just in general, you know, a lot of people uh, lose sight of that. So I'm glad that you, you already gave, gave some advice before we even yeah. got to the end. Right. Yeah, right. no, but that's, I mean, that's, that's key. You have to work on your craft and you have to be as good as you can and keep growing. And, and, and if you want to have a career, you can't sit still and be complacent and think, okay, this is it. You know, you have to keep evolving and, and getting better because you're changing as you get older as well. So what might, you know, that charm that you might have when you're 20 and you're good looking or whatever you have going for you, if that's the case, might not be there when you're in your 40s. So if, you, if your craft is not there, if you haven't been working on your craft, then you're going to have a hard time being able to transition to through all the different stages of mm. career. And that's why I heard it. But now that I've been in the game for a while, you realize it is a marathon and you're going to have ups and downs. And it's, it's how you deal with the downs, what's going to help you get back up and what's going to keep you. Hmm. Um, I'm always fascinated. I, I, I've always been fascinated with the whole mental aspect of, of, of athletics. It started with athletics. I used to play baseball. And, uh, and I remember somebody telling me who had played in the major leagues for 20, 20 years, um, and this person told me the difference between the superstars in baseball, but the same goes for any sport in baseball and the ones who are barely making it is not physical. It's not the talent. It's the mental aspect of the game. How do you deal with striking out three times in a game? Do you bring mm -hmm. that to the next game or you forget about it and you go and it's a new game and you let it go and you start all over again. The people who are stars have the ability to do that. Michael Jordan would miss more shots than, than anybody in the history of basketball or something like that. Obviously, he had a lot of failure. If you think about missing a shot as a failure, but that didn't stop him from taking the next one or Kobe or, you know, and it's the same with, with, with the arts. It's, there's a lot of failure. 
There's a lot of times that the role doesn't go your way. There's a lot of times you don't get the auditions and you have to be able to let it go and, and keep. So I've always been fascinated by, by the, the mental aspect. And part of it is not getting too high when you're having success and not getting too low when you're, when you're not doing well, knowing that, okay, this is, this is part of the process. And it happens to, to everybody. I mean, if you look at, you look at Marlon Brando's career, possibly the greatest actor in modern times. If you look at his films and his history, there are a lot of crappy movies that he a made that nobody watched. Yeah. Yeah, so sure. He did the Godfather. Nobody wanted the Godfather. They didn't, want they didn't want him for the Godfather. Yeah. Marlon Brando, afterwards, you go, wow, that's no brainer. Marlon Brando, the, but at the time, it wasn't a no brainer. Marlon Brando wasn't that desired in Hollywood or by audiences. And that's no, Marlon yeah. Brando. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Same was for Al Pacino around that time too. You know, nobody wanted him, so he's yeah. he's had a pretty decent career as well. Al Pacino almost didn't even get started. If you think right, about it. right. Well, yeah. it's funny because we'll probably talk about it on the intro outro, but next week, you know, there's that big Paramount Plus series coming out, The Offer, which oh, is about yeah. the making of The Godfather. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting to see how they they portray those sort of thespians when they were trying to get the roles and all mm -hmm. the sort of you know a lot of internal drama just to get the movie made. What they don't say about Al Pacino was, and I didn't even know this, and I'm a big fan of Al Pacino. Al Pacino when he did The Godfather, he had already won a Tony. Mm. Oh wow! But I don't know that. Yeah, he yeah. was a big theater guy. Yeah, talking yeah. about he Broadway. Had won a Tony already, so he probably would have been doing okay in theater mm. on Broadway. Yeah, but he wouldn't be the opportunity who we know. Who we know. Yeah, no, absolutely. But yeah, it's. I think it's a lot true what you're saying in terms of, you know, I think it's a baseball quote and it applies to what you were saying that it's 1% talent, 99% hustle. Um, and, and I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, obviously, and, and, you know, if you have more than 1% talent, even better, but without that hustle component, uh, it's really, like you said, what keeps you as a working actor uh, and continue to push your career forward. Yogi Berra said it's 90% mental and the other half uh, physical. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Add that there you up. Go. There you go. Yeah. So um, I want to jump into your career, your actual career, because you've done some of my favorite you know, shows and um, movies. And so I'd like to talk about the build of your career because you came into L.A. Now, if you if you already had these films when you came in, it didn't help to show that work to cat to um to agents and managers that you already had work. That didn't help at all. It got me representation when I got, it got you representation. I, I came yeah. to LA and I already had a manager uh, because the manager was repping the director of the film that I had done, Eduardo Garrido, excellent talented director who's no longer in the game. He he's gone on to do very well, I think, as an accountant or something. Um, but he had a he had a rep he had a manager at that time. Uh, that manager repped me, so I came to LA with representation. Mm. I didn't get a lot through this manager, but it gave you it gave me hope coming in that I was uh, that I was in the game. Yeah. Soon after, I realized, wait, I'm not getting auditions. I'm not getting. But that that initial hope that I'm you know I have representation. I'm starting to see how things are done to move forward. Um, that helped me. And the one thing, luckily, I'm not been, I've never been a big party person. Um, I've seen a lot of people come to LA 
and get caught up in the party. Mm. And next thing you know, 10 years have passed and their careers have not progressed. They haven't made they're, you know, they haven't been working on their craft because they've been partying and they maybe they got into partying thinking that this is a way to meet people. Mm. But, you know, just because they want to party with you doesn't mean they want to put you in the film. Right. Yeah. It might mean the opposite, actually. <laughs> True. They, don't, they don't know that you might show up on Monday. Uh, there you go. Don't shit where you eat mentality. <laughs> exactly. They see you partying. Uh, so for me, luckily, I, I was never big into that scene. So that kept me focused on what I was here for. And, and, and I always tell people this, remember what brought you here. Remember what made you say, I want to be an actor. Um, mm. Because when things are going tough, that's what's going to keep you around. If you're focused on why, why you're here, what have you given up to come here? Mm. Um, that's what's going to keep you going yeah. or, or make you quit. And then that's the case. Then, you know, then obviously what you gave up was something that you decided, okay, I no longer want to give that up. Um, but it's important to be, to be clear what your objectives are. Just like when you're doing a scene, what your objectives are in life. Why are you doing this? Um, is, is the passion for this, for filmmaking as an actor or director, is it so great that, you know, that's going to keep her around. If it is, then you're going to want to keep working on your craft and you want to keep improving because it's boring not to, not to get better, not to, not to, uh, you know, explore other avenues. Yeah. So we're writing, writing or right. so your storyteller, you know, they're your storyteller. Your story. Yeah. And I, I just had a quick question. I'll, I'll give it over to Kevin is uh, in terms of, like you said, you know, focusing on the craft, especially when you're in L.A., mm -hmm. how, how did you continue to focus on the craft? Was it just scene study? Did you take more acting classes just to meet other actors and kind of get some pro tips out in L.A.? Or, Workshop. Yeah. How did you kind of continue? All to of the above, man. All of the above. I started in Miami. I, I studied. I first started in Miami with a lady by the name of Teresa Maria Rojas, excellent acting teacher. that Many people uh, have studied with her. Hmm. And um, and I studied for a while uh, with a gentleman by the name of Dan Chernoff, uh, excellent acting teacher as well in Miami. And then I moved to L.A. and I had a strong base and desire to learn as well. And at first, at first I didn't have money to go to acting class. So I... Um, Man, I read everything I could. I would go to movies. I would watch movies all the time. I would see why this is working, why that's not working, what actors I admire, why do I admire them, but how do they deal with this dialogue? I would find scripts of projects I have made. I would read the scripts, and then I would watch the movies and see, okay, let me see what they did with these lines, what choices were made. Wow, that's interesting. And, and that was part of my growth. And then... I was blessed enough to meet a gentleman by the name of Sal Romeo, a, an acting teacher in L.A. who had a theater. And there he gave me a space to be able to, to, to grow, to learn more, to put plays up. I did a lot of theater there. Um, and that's the best training. Yeah, uh, It was a little theater. It's beautiful because it's a little theater. Where I met my wife, by the way, in that theater as well. So it's like I'm saying that things fall into place when you have no idea 
how they fall into place. Mm. And um, it was a little theater, so it was so intimate that even though I was doing theater, it was almost like I was doing film and television. Because, you know, when I whispered, I could whisper. I didn't have to project in, you know, the 99-seat theater. Right. Or there were maybe nine seats there. Not a little bit more than nine, but you get the idea. So yeah. it was the best of the two worlds, and that was huge training for me. Yeah. Huge training and doing a lot of theater. I mean, there's no reason why you can't keep learning and growing. Libraries, public library, you know, that became my best friend. It was a few blocks from my house, and I was there all the time. I still go all the time. The other day I was talking to somebody. Oh, I think it was you. You it was said, me. Oh, That's to, right. Yeah, you, you still go to the library. I go, I go to the library all the time. Yeah, yeah. You, even with all this Wikipedia and online stuff, you're old school. But I, I think no, there's something. Man, I like to, <laughs> I like to turn the pages and make mm. notes and. Yeah, but real books have a smell, right? They have a weight to them. It feels like the words mean more when you're reading a book versus when you're like going through a tablet or whatever. I feel like I'm going to school every time I step in the library. It's like. There's all these possibilities. And then I go in and I'm looking for something and I ended up walking out with something else as well. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and I learned something new, even if I don't take out the book, uh, I'm opening the book, I'm reading inside. I see something. I look at actors, biographies. I look at filmmaking. I might not even take the book cause I don't have time to read the book or whatever, but I'm like, Oh, wow. You know, Tarantino said this or, mm. or Sacy or whatever. And it's, there's so much knowledge there. That That's me, great. I love it's this. Peaceful. It's peaceful. I can't be on the phone. Mm. People can't talk to me. It's, it's a great place to like mm. zone out or tune in. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. This, it really feels like a holistic approach because it, the way that you're speaking about it, it's looking at the whole of what the industry is. You know, you as an actor, but you're talking about, Scorsese or you heard this quote from Tarantino you know and that theater experience nothing can replace that I mean I'm a huge no. believer in you know being able I, I feel any actor that I can bring in from theater you know like you can kind of use them for many different things because they're used to improv which to me is one of the most important elements and you know when you're in theater that's something that you have to do constantly you don't know what's going to happen on a on a, a performance to, to performance basis and so. you never know how it's going to, you know, um, I was blessed to have been in the last four years in a Tyler Perry show called The Has and the Half Knots. And Tyler comes from a theater background. Yeah, he does. That's and right. he directs like he's doing theater, uh, meaning he's got four cameras going on. You're getting a couple takes at most. <laughs> and um, if something happens in that scene, deal with it. Don't stop because he, don't stop because somebody spilled a bottle of water on the table that you're doing the scene. You better wipe that table as you keep saying your dialogue because Tyler's going really fast and he's got a bunch of scenes to shoot and you just messed up his scene hmm. for a reason that you could have dealt with it if you had done theater. Right. Yeah. Um, improv. <laughs> improv. You got to deal with that. And, um, and that was huge for me doing that show. And it is a lot of pages as well, which mm -hmm. you get to do in theater and then not a lot of cuts. So it all, like I said, you know, it all falls into place. All mm -hmm. these little things, all these challenges along the way, 
they all make sense when you're looking back and you go, okay, I had to go through this so I can do that. I had to go here so I can meet my wife. I had to, you know, have these failures. I had to have these, these moments of like, I really had to look deep inside myself and, and wonder, wow, am I going to have any success in this career? Is this it? You know, that I come here to LA, I get a little emotional even thinking about it because it, it brings me back. But guess what? I've been able to been able to look into that when I'm playing certain roles and bring that to the role because it's there. It's alive in me. I went through that. Right. Doesn't matter. People say, oh, you know, so-and-so is lucky because he's the son of so-and-so. So so that's good. That's their that's their journey. That wasn't mine. Now, I'm sure they have things that they can, you know, grab out of their 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 existence of their growing up, their life experience that I don't have. And that's what makes them unique to what they're doing. And it gives them the success they're having. And this is the one I'm having. Yeah. Right. So I look at other careers and go, oh, I wish I I wish I was doing that. I wish, yeah, of course you do. And that that keeps you fighting for more, but not focusing so much on somebody else. And this I learned in sports. There's somebody else that, you know, when they hit the ball to you, you drop it. And that's a problem. Hmm. You yeah. just drop the ball. Focus on your own game, kind of. Focus on your own game, your own your own journey. Right. It's your journey. You know, it's nobody else's. It might not look like how you wanted it to look, maybe. But it's it's the journey that you have to have. It's the one that, you, you know, that you've carved out for yourself for whatever reason. Yeah, but you've carved out some pretty, pretty incredible credits, Queen of the South. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Man, Queen of the South was was interesting. Queen of the South, I didn't want to get it. This is interesting. Hmm. I wanted to be in Queen of the South. So uh, you people from Queen of the South, I wanted to be in the show. But I wanted to have like a recurring role or be a series regular on the show. Because obviously there's a lot of Latino roles and there's not a lot of Latino roles on TV. Yeah. Um, so I got that audition in Miami. I was visiting Miami. I had just <laughs> arrived in Miami. And I got the audition for Queen of the South. My character dies at the end of the episode. It's a cool role. Um, I play an accountant to, the, to the, one of the cartels. Um. That already doesn't sound good, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And he gets killed at the I look at it, I go, I get killed at the end of the show. And I'm like, at the end of the, se- of the episode, I'm like, I don't want to die in the episode. So I did this audition. And of course, they say, and it's true, you're not only auditioning for what you're auditioning for, you're auditioning for future roles as well. Yeah. So you can't, I mean, you have to put in the work. But having said that, I um, I was relaxed when I auditioned. I was very relaxed because I didn't want to do it. Mm. So I, it's not like I, you know, obviously I got the role, but I didn't want to do it. And there's something to be said when you're that relaxed. Yeah. When yeah. you don't care if you get it or not. And you just, it's just about the work without thinking about anything else. And that's what it was. It was about this scene that I'm putting on tape, this conversation, making it real for myself, doing everything that I normally do but without the pressure of, I hope I get it. Right. Or I need to get this or whatever. Or I need yeah. to get this. And every time, every time I've auditioned for something that I'm like, for whatever reason, I hope I don't get this, this one. 
I book it. <laughs> and it has to, I think it's, I've heard this, this, people say this and you're like, yeah, how? I think they smell that you don't, you don't, you don't need it or you don't care if you yeah. get it. As long as you do the work, if you suck on the audition because you don't want to get it, then that's something else that speaks badly about you and you'll never get another audition with this casting director or at least in a long time while they remember you. So you got to put in the work. But the, the, there's something about being so relaxed. Like It's all about this, about this work and nothing else. I'm not seeing myself in Dallas. It was shot in Dallas at the time. In Dallas shooting Queen of the South because I hope I don't get it. And then I got it. And then it's like my manager said, well, you know, it's a hit show. You should do it. Yeah. You know, it's up to you because you're weighing, okay, do I want to? And I did it. And, you know, a lot of people watched it and turned out well. And I'm glad I did it. A couple of years later, they, they I got a call from them. They go, hey, uh, are you available? We're doing eight episodes. There's a role that shoots for about eight episodes. They wanted me to read. They weren't offering it, but they, they were just checking in. I'm like, I died in season two. When did you actually, when was the first time in LA where you auditioned, booked something and felt like, okay, this is working? Like the breakthrough moment for you that you felt in LA, um, you know, that, that first role that really meant that, oh gosh, I've, I've kind of arrived now I'm, I'm here and I'm working and this is, this is, this may work out. Um, that I, that I felt honestly that I felt I had had little success. You know, I had done a movie. Uh, a few years, I might not be. I might be doing like a politician and not answering your call, your question direct. Uh, I had done a film called Hunting of Men. Um, like I had been like, like three years. I did this film Hunting of Men. It was a little film. Um, came out straight to video or something at the time. Uh, barely because Blockbuster kind of folded soon after. But I there, I met a director. I had met him right before that called Joe. His name is Joe Menendez, who you now know. I met Joe doing, I met him before. I met him because of Libertad. He had seen the film Libertad about a political prisoner in Cuba. And we had met for lunch and then we stayed in touch. And he had recommended me for another job, a show called Placas. The Spanish show was like America's most wanted. And I did that early on when I moved here. And um, so then I did this movie with Joe. Joe was Got this movie. I think it was his first movie in L.A. He got this movie, Hunting a Men, and he brought me into audition. And I ended up getting one of the roles in the film. And um, and that was nice. It felt good to be on set, to have a, a good role in, in L.A., working with some actors and stuff that, you know, had, had some success already here in, in L.A. But then nothing happened with it. But, it's again, it's, you know, the work that you put in. A few years later, Joe got um, got a film by the name of Ladron Que Roba Ladron, to rob a thief. It was the first Spanish film ever produced by an American studio, ever, in the history of Hollywood. They had distributed films, but never produced, never put up their, their own money. And li- this was Lionsgate. And um, and I came in to read for one of the leads. That, that movie... Going in, before we even did the movie, we knew it was going to be released theatrically. And it was going to have a big theatrical release for a Spanish film. Uh, it, un- it ended up coming out in 300 and something theaters. Um, and it did very well. 
that was the first time I felt doing that film that I'm like, okay, I'm doing something that people are actually going to see. That my mom's going to be able to see Miami. Right. You know, that, right. that, that was that sense. Because before that, I had not had a lot of success. I had done a, I had, I had done a little film. It wasn't that little, but it was a little budget for Hollywood standards called Larceny. It had a bunch of name actors. Uh, uh, Tyra Banks was in it. Andy Dick. Uh, Josh Leonard was in it. A bunch of people. Uh, Rosalind Sanchez. But that movie didn't really go anywhere. And it, actually, I met, it was the weirdest thing. You know, you work hard. I met the, the producer, Charlie Cabrera, his name, who was originally from Miami. I met him at a party. And I gave him a copy of Libertad, again, the movie I had done in Miami. I gave him a copy of Libertad. And he goes, you know, I'm producing this movie. Um, there's a role. I'd love to bring you in to meet the director. And here I am, I go in, I'm thinking, I'm gonna, the director looks up at me, Erwin Schwartz is the guy's name, looks up at me and says, okay, are you available? Well, I didn't read anything. <laughs> are you oh. available? That's how I got my first film role in L.A., um, this movie called Larceny. Th that didn't go anywhere. I'm sure it's somewhere. I saw it on a blockbuster or something. Hmm. But then the, the, the um, hunting of men led to be able to do Ladrón, ladrón. Hmm. That was the first time that I had gone from, you know, working hard, a lot of struggle, a lot of dark nights that I'm like, how am I going to pay the rent? And, right. you know, that type of type of stories that you hear and you always hear them and it sounds like a Hollywood story, but but they're real. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they're real. Uh, you know, you're eating hot dogs every day. Hmm. Uh, luckily, I like hot dogs. <laughs> um, so that was the Ladroca. I booked Ladroca Roba Ladron, and soon after I booked Kane. Mm. Like months later, I booked Kane. So I, I went from not doing anything to being in a movie that's coming out theatrically and then booking a show that everybody wanted to get on at the time. Right. And it was a big deal when it came out. And then it got, you know, it got canceled because of a writer's strike. And that was a whole big story. But Kane was the most expensive show CBS had at the time. Oh, wow. And it, and it was a big deal to land on the show and suddenly my role was popular. And it was weird. It was great and weird. You know, I, I was out in the street and people would call me Santo. Or they would say, <laughs> Mr. Vega, Mr. Vega. Like I would call yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy Smith's character. And it was like, you know, it was the first time that that I got a sense of, the, of you know, what's a little bit of success is. Mm. Uh, uh, on a show and funny enough to this day people still bring it up that show even though it lasted only one season we did 13 episodes and my character came in and you know and it kept growing every episode it kept growing because people liked the character and you know, he was authentic uh, I played a Cuban who had just arrived from Cuba and he was edgy and stuff like that even though I was born in Miami but being in Miami I knew guys like this. Yeah. And it, you know, I was able to bring that to the role. Again, looking back, my experience growing up and knowing a bunch of characters growing up as well led to me to me be able to do this. Mm. Yeah. yeah. When I did Ladron Carro Ladron, my character was an out-of-work actor who was struggling. I wasn't very <laughs> far from where I was at. Very far-fetched, right? No. <laughs> No, <laughs> not at all. 
So everything I had gone through, basically, I had all these life, this life experience that if my dad had been Michael Douglas, I wouldn't have had yeah. when it came to doing this show. Yeah. I knew what it was being that hungry, like the character, you know, and questioning your talent and wondering if it's enough. But it doesn't matter because you say you can do it. You know, regardless of your question, I wonder if I can do it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I can do it. I can do it. Yeah, I can do it. Then you're trying to figure out how you're going to do it. Um, That's awesome. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, you talked about a couple of folks, obviously, Joe Menendez, who's also Cuban-American from Miami, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and sort of his that connection there with the community, but then also with Kane, you know, which again, another point of pride, you know, uh, the, like I said, the biggest show at the time on CBS about a Cuban family and a rum family, obviously kind of alluding to the Bacardi's uh, and, and then just kind of like seeing for not just, and I'm sure for your family too, seeing those characters uh, on a primetime CBS show representing their culture and our history probably meant a lot for you, not only in terms of the breakthrough in your career, but how does it feel knowing that you're representing your culture and your community at, at such a big level now? Um, it's, it's important for, for me to, to, when I'm part of a project, a project to make sure that we're portrayed accurately, you know, and Gaslit. Hmm. Gaslit is a series that's coming out now on stars julia roberts champagne huge cast oh yeah i know the show i can't wait for that show yeah i'm in i'm in four out of the eight episodes um, oh great but for me it was important well, maybe i'm getting ahead of myself again for me it was no, important we, we go all over the place treating <laughs> Miami. go where you want to go for me it was important that the role of the cubans who were the burglars the white house burglars or the plumbers they called them plumbers because they were trying to stop the leak of information from the Nixon administration, trying to figure out how, did, how was this information getting out? So he wanted to, big thing, that everybody knows, most people know the history. Um, but what was important to me, and I had a conversation, I brought it up, was, listen, these guys don't care about Republicans and they don't care about Democrats and they don't care about that, my character. What he cares about, they care about, is liberating Cuba. And Nixon promised them that if he got reelected, he'd go after Castro. And they had information that the McGovern, McGovern who was running against uh, Castro, who was running against Nixon, Nixon right. was friendly with the Castro administration. At least he didn't hate them like Nixon did. Hmm. So basically... Which, you know, which horse are you going to bet on? That's basically what it came down to for the Cubans. You, that you're promise me, promising me that you're going to help me take down Castro, or the other guy who's taking money from, you know, who one of the things that they were trying to find out is if they were taking money from the North Vietnamese government and the Cuban government to help their campaign, the campaign mm -hmm. against Nixon. So history, we know history and we know that, you know, everything was wrong and all that. But I don't judge my character as I'm playing him because people don't do that in life, regardless who you're playing. I'm, I'm going from the point of view, okay, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I leaving Miami and getting involved in something that has nothing to do with me? Why? Because I have family in Cuba. 
I, I need to get them out. She was a big prison. I'm a Bay of Pigs veteran. I've been, my whole life has been dedicated to liberating Cuba. I'm a soldier. So when you bring that into the equation, then you have a clear objective. And to me, it was important for to be said. We know history will, you know, they got arrested and they went to prison and all that. But the reason why I was doing it, this character, why he was doing it in real life, Virgilio Gonzalez, the guy who I was playing, was because he wanted to liberate Cuba. Hmm. That was his reason. And that was important, you know, that I, I think that's a great example of the responsibility I feel of of bringing the human aspect to. And it, it's with any role I play, uh, be it Cuban or not, it's, mm. you know, it's I, I feel a responsibility to making them real human. Because if you, if if not, you're borderline caricature. Yeah. Right. And that's yeah. how we connect to the characters, really, is that, that heart and soul. So, that humanism. So, that's a... Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that makes a lot. That's that's a great point, too, in terms of finding the actor's motivation and bringing that level of authenticity when you do get a chance to play a Cuban role. But like you said, you've played many different types of characters, many different roles. Uh, you've also, even though you're in L.A., I know you've kept close to the Miami filmmaking community. And, you know, I remember we I co-produced a film that you were in, Jokes Giannis, uh, the, uh, <laughs> that fun little uh, tow truck movie down in Miami. Uh, oh, you were in you that know. movie? Yeah, that's right. I yeah. love any mini money mo <laughs> really i love it i played yeah. the i played the you're the club Jimmy. Owner. yeah Jimmy, the club oh owner. that's you wow yeah I, I played that movie for um my company was doing um, a miami film month for the greater miami convention and visitors bureau oh, uh really? jokes is a friend yeah oh, and, okay yeah um my wife and i went to go see the movie it was at the miami film festival and, i was there <laughs> yeah and I love the movie. She loved the movie. I was like, "Hey, what do you think?" She's like, "Yeah, it's a you fun movie. It. It's, it's a fun yeah. movie. Dark, yeah, fun movie. You know, it's 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 flashy. It's Miami. Yeah, it's yeah. very very Miami. Very yeah. very Miami. That's cool. You know, that yeah. to have that connection. But you know what? I'm glad, Jail, that you brought this up because I was thinking about, you know, there there is a lot of, especially now, you know, this kind of you know, see this talent pool of, of Cuban, um, not just actors, but everyone from Carlos Rafael Rivera, who just won another Emmy for uh, compose, uh, composing music on the Queen's Gambit. And he won, he won one for already for Godless. Um, we know Jordi, Jordi Villasuso, who's, you know, an Emmy award winner. Um, I'm watching Moon Knight right now with, with uh, Oscar Isaac, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there is this talent pool that, you know, I don't want to say it's rising because, you know, you guys have been been in the game for a while, but there's a lot of notice that's being taken. And I, I love that, you know, someone that, you know, is here in Miami from Miami, you know, and kind of seeing, you know, there's a lot of pride in, in that kind of, you know, connection, that kind of connection. Totally, so. totally. And, and to us, it's important to like, I, I went back to Miami, I was... I went back to Miami last year, actually in the middle of shooting um, Gaslit. I had a couple of weeks off. Luckily, luckily it worked out. I had a couple of weeks off and I went to do a, this short film um, that Danny Pino, who's from Miami, who's done very well for himself. Cold mm -hmm. Case and uh, Law and Order and 
bunch of stuff. He was directing and he wrote. And basically, he and, I, uh, he and I were playing relatives in Pony Plana in the film. I don't want to give anything away. So because it's it's but um, it's called Union of Kings, the, film, the short film. That's very cool. You know that you're doing films, you're doing television, you come back, you do short films. You know, that really shows that it's about the work. You know, it's exactly what you said when we first yeah. started. It's about the work. So that's really nice to hear, man. Yeah. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, that's uh, incredible. But I think we should talk a little bit, you know, and I know that this hour has flown by, but we have a little bit more time, you know, because you, uh, you're also now directing and producing your own films, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you've developed a stuff, and I know you have a very good working relationship with, with your wife, Judy, who's a very accomplished actress in her own right. Uh, so talk a little bit about your work there and developing your own material and some of the work you've, you've put out and that you, you may be putting out soon in terms of your, your directing work as well. Um, totally. It started with my wife. Um, when I met her, she had written a script called Pretty Rosebud. Um, and I remember reading it and I'm like, wow, I was, I was intimidated by it. Actually. I'm like, this is really well written. I want to be in it somehow. Um, and then we got married and the script stuck around like it happens and uh, at some point i said to her hey, we have to do this movie and i said to her if you don't play if we don't do this now you're gonna have to play the mother role because there's a mother and there's a daughter so you're gonna be too old to play the daughter we don't hurry up <laughs> and <laughs> that got her think, going huh <laughs> i think within the year we're shooting the movie but <laughs> after sitting there for about 10 um wow. Because it's the thing, again, that we think, you know, we have time. We have time and you leave it for tomorrow. And, you know, your own demons come into the picture. We all have that as artists, you know, our doubts are. But you have to realize that, you know, time moves. Time doesn't sit, wait for anybody. Uh, so I wanted to direct. I started to gain this feeling that I wanted to direct. I was looking at, like, people like Clint Eastwood who's, you know, his 90s now. He wasn't his 90s then, but was his 80s, I think. And he's like, wow, he's still directing. He's still playing lead roles in film. He gets to cast himself. Maybe nobody else would cast him at this point as a lead in a film, but he obviously creates these projects for himself, for himself or acquires them and tells these stories. And I'm like, if he can do it, I'd love to be able to do that. That's a way to have longevity in a career and tell stories and be in control of the whole story. So we started looking for directors for Pretty Rosebud. It's a feature film. And um, and for whatever reason, people weren't completely right. The people that we talked to, for whatever reason, they didn't want, they didn't like the story or they, you know, they didn't have a sensibility. It's, it's a little tricky uh, story. Um, and at some point I said to my wife, I think I can direct this. Because I had spent enough time with it that I, I could see the scenes. I could see how I think it should be shot and how to tell the story in an intimate way and all that. So that was my first project that I directed. Um, and then a long time passed and I didn't, not that long, but, you know, the movie came out in 2015. And it got picked up. We got distribution. So it was like, you know, we were blessed. It wasn't like a movie that we shot and nobody saw. It, it came out. 
We had a one-week theatrical release in LA, and then we got the indie rights uh, company distributed the film, and it was out, still out. You can watch it on on Amazon and Tubi and a bunch of different places. So I had this story in my head about a project that ended up being called Just a Man and a Woman. It was a short film. And um, and one day, New Year's Eve, I decided to write it. I said, I can't. The New Year can't get here without me. And I sat down and I wrote the whole, I wrote the whole film in one sitting. Wow. Basically. I mean, I did some rewrites afterwards, very, but very minor stuff, actually. Because I had the movie had been so long in my head that I could actually, it's like, I was like, I was like a tape recorder in my head that was like the dialogue and this and how the scene progressed and everything. I saw it. And I wrote this short film that we're now at film festivals and it's done, it's done really, I mean, it's been it's surprised me how well it's done. Um, it's playing in New York May fifteenth. Oh wow! May fourteenth is playing in New York. Um, it's playing. It played yesterday in Scotland. Oh wow! On a bunch of awards and stuff like although the awards is not the reason why we do this. It's nice to get an award, but that's not the reason why you should go into doing a film. Is because you want to tell the story. You have something to say. In this case, I did have something to say and something that bothered me, and and I put it in the story. That's what the story is about. Um, funny enough, I was inspired. I'm going off a little bit of the subject. I was inspired by a movie that I had seen many times called 28 Rooms, which mm. is about this two people that meet in different hotel rooms. 20 hotel room, and it's like this relationship that they have with all the ups and downs. And it looks like an affair. It's, it's an interesting story. 28 Rooms. That movie's directed by a guy by the name of Matt Ross. Matt Ross directed Captain Fantastic that was nominated oh. for, for an Oscar. Yeah. Uh, Viggo Mortensen was nominated for an Oscar. Love that. Turns movie. out that Matt Ross is the director of Gaslit. Oh. He's the one that gave me the wow. job. And I told him. <laughs> they came full circle. I go, you know, your movie inspired me to do this film, to write this film. It gave me the content because my film, it all takes place in a hotel room over time. So that part was the same, which I thought it was brilliant and no way to shoot the movie with little money. So it turns out that, you know, I'm here. I am working with Matt Ross, the friend of Matt Ross, and, and he was one of the key people that inspired me to tell this story the way I told it. So, and during, so during COVID, I, I was invited to, uh, to be part of a project called sense of virtues, uh, which is COVID stories. And, um, and my wife wrote the story and she and I started and she added it the film. We had to, the part of the thing was to do everything yourself. Mm. Um, and that's, that's out somewhere. Sins of Virtue. It's a short. It's a short story that we wrote. Sweet short story. Our cats in it. We shot it <laughs> in our house. It's, it's. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, this turned out well. So I, I had think the world story. wants to know if the cat is a good actor. The cat <laughs> is a scene stealer. <laughs> the cat is amazing. He yes. is. He, he is. Um, it just doesn't work well with other people. There you go. Yeah, I was we found out later on. As long cats, as you could direct, 
cats have to be protagonists. I think dogs can be supporting roles. But. Yeah, no, the cat is a lead. If you put up, you put the camera on him, and he sticks around long enough, nobody's gonna be looking at you. Um, so I wrote another film that was inspired by different stories, and and of uh, I kept hearing about COVID, and so you know during COVID we all went through through this. We're still going through it. Wait, yeah. But, People lonely and this and that. And so I came up with a story, and I don't want to give it away, of being able to tell all these stories through through one woman. And I wanted to tell her story and what she was going through and what other people were going through at the same time. It was parallel. And but the challenge obviously I needed one protagonist and the challenges of what she needed to overcome today on one day. So I wrote a movie called the I wrote a movie called The Summer Day. And we shot it very kind of like how we shot the other film, but this was a feature and we're in post right now. And my wife, my wife stars in it as well. You know, that's one of the advantages of having an excellent actor at home living <laughs> with you. You know, you can write for her and she can star and you know, it inspires you to come up with stories. I have You're difficulty me. writing for myself, funny enough. <laughs> Actress and, and editor, it seems, and uh, writer. Yeah. And writer, she's an excellent writer yeah. as well. Yeah. What so what's it, yeah, it's like you live with your muse, essentially. I live 24. with my muse. I do. I do. <laughs> You're hundred percent active. Wow, that's that's amazing. So and I, I like think... to say it's the only time Cheryl listens to me when I'm directing. Ah. <laughs> the only good. time. <laughs> good good pro tip for us married men. <laughs> Direct your that. wife so she actually <laughs> make sure she's the lead. And make sure yes. That, well, that's the case with my wife. My beautiful wife Sylvia is always the lead in yeah. life and work and everything else. So exactly, <laughs> as she should be. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, but this is great, and and I love the evolution of your career. But again, how everything in your journey seems to tie together. And you mentioned at the beginning perfectly this idea that it's when you're looking back that you realize all the connections and how they made sense as opposed to when you're going through it you would have never known that something would have come into play years later right you know, in your people life. who you meet people who you meet and that's why they say treat everybody with respect and, and mm. you know you hear this and we're taught this but so many people that i met down the road have become key in my career Going back, Joe Menendez. Joe Menendez had seen the movie that I was that I had started and they were done, and we met for lunch. I would have been, and Joe had he had not done that much at a high profile. He had done a lot. It's like what is it, ten thousand hours of, of training before you succeed or something? He had done a lot, but not that the world had noticed. So here I am meeting with a with a talented director, but he hadn't done all the stuff that he's done now, Star Trek and bunch of you know produce major projects and all that stuff but if if i would have given a bad impression i wouldn't have gone on to work with him 11 12 times mm. oh, after wow. that first film you know mm. so it's it's important how you how you treat people and treat them with respect and and you know and because you never know who, who you're meeting you never know who that person is you never know what the potential is and what they're going to do with. And, and, you know, even if you think, if you see somebody's work and you don't think, Ooh, you know, it's a little shaky, you don't know what's inside that person. Yeah. And, and what that person's striving for and the challenges they're going through and all that. So I'm like, be supportive of everybody. 
because yeah. you never know. You never know what that's going to mean. And not that you do it because it's going to come back and it's going to help your career, but it could. Hmm. Good. There shouldn't be a reason why you're doing it. You should treat people with respect because, you know, they deserve respect. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times, even when they don't deserve it, you should treat them with respect. You don't know what they're going through. Like, like Oscar Torres, writer by the name, has my same name, Oscar Torres. I met him years ago. I met him in Miami, actually. He's from my, he, he lives out here, but I met him in Miami. I think he lives in Mexico now. I'm not sure. Um, I just did a film with him last year called Seventh in the Union. It's coming out June 3rd uh, as an Amazon original film. He wrote that film. Oscar is somebody who I've known for years. I've had a friendly relationship with him for years. I end up booking a role in this film that Tony Nardolillo, who now is a friend, um, directed. Through doing that film, I ended up doing another film in Mexico at the beginning of this year that I shot in Mexico with Ruben Islas, who's the head of Broken English Productions, who produced the Amazon original film, Seventh in the Union. Uh, so it's, it's, you see all these relationships that you that along the way, you meet people. You know, Omar Chaparro, who was the lead in Seventh and Union, super talented actor, hardest working guy in show business, brought me as a guest to his show. He has a, a hit show that he's a talk show. Because of my relationship I had with him shooting the film Seventh and Union. Hmm. Oh, wow. You know, so it's, it's, it's treating people with respect, doing your work. Having good, you know, work ethics, um, showing up to work, being honest in your work, and and you know everything else falls into play will fall into place if you stick long, you stick around long enough, and you per, you have perseverance. The Paul Newman, I think, said that was he learned very quickly that that was a key to having a career is to have perseverance. That he wasn't the most talented guy in his class, <laughs> the actor studio, but he persevered. Um, right. And I, I, coming up, man, I knew a lot of people in, in acting class who were very talented, and they're no longer in the business. Mm. They're no longer in the business. So I would say, you know, I would say, put in the work every day, regardless of how you feel. Doesn't matter how you feel that day. You could be depressed, be having a bad day. You could be super happy. You could be, do something that moves you for, towards your goal, that moves you forward. One thing. And and I divide it into business, and I divide it into into my craft. The Hangover. Ah, oh, okay. We said we were going to get back to it, and I I just want to I just want to talk a little bit about The Hangover, because you know I don't think everyone was expecting that movie to be the hit that it ended up being. So mm. can you just talk a little bit about your experience on that movie, and you know how it well, felt? Well, I came. In, I did Hangover three. So yeah. by the time I came in, you know we all knew. Well, yeah, it, was, it, was it was a franchise. We already knew it was a franchise. Which, yeah. which has its challenges as well. If I would have done the first film, let's see, if I would have done the first film, Bradley Cooper for me would have been the guy from Alias. Zach Galafiniakis yeah. is a comedian who I've seen on TV under a mm. table or something. Right, between ferns. <laughs> yeah, Ed Helms, I think it was on a TV show or something. Kim as Jones opposed to... Was like- Right, <laughs> not existent. Yeah. Todd Phillips, you know, is a, it's a director who had done the what, what Wedding Crashers or something. Mm-hmm. I love that film. 
and Riley was in that as well. But there weren't these mega stars by the time the third film came around. So it's a whole different. It was a little different for me working on it. Was like jumping in a on a moving train. Oh, I was already going full speed, and um, and it was it was. It wasn't just any other movie. It was, I was a big fan of The Hangover, especially the first one. So to me, it's like, wow, I booked this. This is mm. high, very high profile. Um, don't mess it up. <laughs> and you did. A lot of people said you stole that, those scenes that you were in, you know, uh, which were the scenes in Mexico, I believe, right? You played the well, sheriff or the. You know, uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but if it, if you shine in a scene in a way, if you shine in a scene is because the the writing helped you do what you were doing. The other actors were there present, giving you stuff that you reacted to, mm. and of course you have to do your homework and you have to bring you have to bring bring it, or else you're gonna get overshadowed by these very talented people. So you gotta come in ready like a fighter. Knowing, hey, they're not—they're not going down easy. This is a real scene. This is a real moment, and you're playing the chief of police of Mexico, and these guys are not mega stars. Who, who, you know, when you're walking to set, there's a roadblock, and you hear the fans in Arizona. We're shooting in Arizona, screaming, "Rally!" <laughs> and there's cops blocking the street and all that. <laughs> you can't be thinking about that. And to me. It came down to, and it's almost you got to talk to yourself, which I do in Ladron Que Roba Ladron. I brought that to the Capulet actor, and I think I'm always talking to myself. So you see my character <laughs> talking to himself a lot, like finding confidence. But you have to. You have to say, wait a second. I'm the chief of police in Mexico, and these are three white dudes who came here, and they committed a crime. And now they're trying to talk the way out of it. And this guy here who has a record this big, is a freaking weirdo. And the other guy, the good looking guy in front of me is trying to charm his way out of this. And the other geeky guy is nervous as hell. So they're guilty. Right. And I'm in charge here. I'm the star. So it's almost, <laughs> that's how I played that scene. I'm the star mm. of this scene. It's not them. I don't care who they are. I don't know who they are. You know, and they got to pay attention to me. So that's how I played the scene. And anything that happened that the attention wasn't on me, I would make sure it came back to me. Wow. Because I'm the chief of police and I'm questioning them. And you don't know. That's a theory. No, that's a theory. Another theory is that you're lying. Because that's what I think, actually thinking the whole time. Your lips are moving. So that's, you know, that's what I brought to the role. And that's why I got the role. Who else? And that's another thing that they're looking at when you're getting cast in a project this big with stars that big. It's like, can can you hang with them? Right. Like, is the pressure going to get to you when yeah. you're there? You know, are you going to be like, oh, it's so great working with you, Bradley. It's so great working with you, Zach. You know, I'm a big fan. You know, are you going to fall into that or are you going to own who you are at this moment? And I think you have to you have to embrace embrace that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's think, only going to make the film better. Right. Ultimately, they want you to bring that. They want yeah. their, the other actors appreciate that. They don't want you there, you know, like being in all the talent, who they are and what they're doing and all that. Hmm. They want you to be that other person because it makes them better. 
And in return, if they're not selfish actors, they're going to make you better. Yeah. You know, and that's why that scene worked. And it's funny. It's funny because it's high stakes for everybody involved. Um, and I think that's what makes any scene work. It has to be high stakes. It has to be, especially in comedy. It has to be, it has to be life and death. And don't play the comedy. Don't try to be funny. Because then you're not funny and the audience smells that and picks that up and you look like a clown. <laughs> Although I love clowns. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this, this has definitely been um, a hilarious Screen Heat Miami, I got to tell you. But it, it's been a master class. I mean, because you were, you, you've been able to weave the process and what the work is all about. And I feel every actor should listen to this one. That's, that's the way I'm going to promote it. Because mm. I've I learned a lot. I, I don't do as much in front of the camera, you know, anymore. But um, I learned a lot about the process, not just in front, but behind the camera. So this has been a real treat. A yeah, real this is treat. awesome. This was great. This was great. So I think. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, do we have time for our, our, our signature yeah, two, two questions? Yeah. Two, oh, boy. Two questions. <laughs> this yeah, is how signature. we end every screen heat. Yeah. Our signature two questions. And it's a two parter. And I usually ask the first one. Kevin asked the second one. Uh, so if you want, Kevin, I'll kick it off. Kick so it. the first one is, you know, now you got to pretend you're in Back to the Future. And if Oscar Torrey oh of 2022 could go back in time to Miami when you were just a kid or a teenager, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your younger self? Don't take things that seriously. Life is meant to be fun. I think I was very serious growing up. Very, I, I probably missed some things. And uh, I learned that later on. I think that it's important to, to enjoy life as well, regardless where you're at. Not wait. I always thought like things are going to be better once I accomplish. I want to be a baseball player. If, I'm, if I make it to the major leagues, life is going to be great. And all we have is this moment. There's nothing else guaranteed. The people who are around me at this moment are not guaranteed to be here tomorrow either. So it's it's important to not lose sight of the moment. And as an artist, the moment is feeding you constantly. So that, I would tell myself that as a little kid, I think try to enjoy the moment without thinking that much about the future. Have a, have a goal. That's important. Have a goal. But don't forget to, to, to appreciate the moment. Mm. That's, That's great. Yeah, that is. Well, I appreciated this moment and this moment is turning now to what you've already seasoned this entire episode with, which is advice. And so if you can extrapolate one last little piece of advice, and this is for, you know, actors and maybe people, you know, that are getting into the industry and maybe people that are already in the industry, you know, mm -hmm. what would you season them with? What kind of adobe would you season there? <laughs> Arroz con pollo. <laughs> Arroz con pollo. We're living, in a we're living in a moment that, as artists, I think if you're, in the, you're a visual artist, meaning you're an actor, you're a director, you're a writer, this is the way you tell stories. It's the best moment because we all have this. Mm. We all have a phone. These have great cameras. To write your stories, film them, tell them, put them on YouTube, put them on Vimeo, put them on your Instagram or Facebook, 
you know, there's no excuse why we shouldn't be creating. When I was first starting out, we had video, which was a horrible, looked horrible. Mm. And then we had film, which was very expensive. So it made it difficult, but still people found a way to tell stories. It wasn't just, it just wasn't as easy. But now we have these cameras who you can, uh, just a man and a woman, I shot it with an iPhone 10. Hmm. There with you an go. iPhone 10, I shot the whole movie. Steve Soderbergh, I was inspired because Steve Soderbergh shot two movies on iPhone two, 10. Three. With an iPhone. And that yeah. wasn't even the iPhone 10. Yeah. Not two movies. Steve, I go, Steve Soderbergh can do it. I can do it. Of course, he had all the bells and, bells and whistles <laughs> and all that. And that's a whole different story. But it's possible. Write your story. We all have stories. Don't judge it when you're doing it. Don't think of like, it's no good. Guess what? It's probably not going to be any good when you're starting out. That's okay. You learn from that. I was a horrible actor when I first started out. Horrible. I, I can barely watch myself. But I was watch. I was learning. I was learning the things I needed to do while I was missing. Besides, everybody else would tell me. My parents, my neighbors would Hey, you know, I saw you in the soap opera. You got to listen more. You got to listen. Wow. They were coaching you. <laughs> they were all better actors than I was. But what I'm saying is, you know, put it out there. Write your story. Write that conversation you overheard at a coffee shop and shoot it. Do it. There's stories to be told constantly. You're paying attention. Hmm. Read the newspaper. Imagine, I don't know. I can think of a million stories off the top of my head. There are things that are happening right now in the world. Put it on paper. It's, it's important what you have to say. Even if you think it's not important, it's important. Even if it's only important to yourself. And tell these stories not to find success, not to find. Tell them because you need to tell them. Because it's in you. You're an artist. And, um. And do them for yourself. That's something that I, I keep. And it, I think as an artist, as a director or a writer, it's, it's a difficult thing to balance because you want to have some commercial success. But that's a result of the work. You have to do it for yourself. And that's what I've learned. You have to make the movie. For, you have to, the first audience is you. And you have to like what you did. So don't worry about what anybody else is going to say. And if it's not, if nobody likes it, but you like it, that's important. Even if you're the only audience, the only person who's going to like it, that's important. Yeah. You're growing, you're learning. We're all, you know, we're not, we're not going to be the same always. So it's, it's, it's okay. Hmm. That's great. This uh, is, yeah. Don't wait for anybody. What I'm saying is don't wait for anybody to all give right. you an opportunity. Because yeah. I hear here in LA, everybody has a script. And you hear people who've been around for 100 years and they're still trying to raise money for that script. And they haven't mm. done anything. And I'm like, why haven't you done anything? Why haven't you done anything? You can shoot something. Shoot a scene from the script. Do something. Right. Don't sit around waiting for somebody else to give you an opportunity when you can do it yourself. Mm. Be creative. That's, hmm. That's great. great. No, yeah. Right. Make shit. We have so much technology now. Like I said, at our fingertips, just, just make shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See what happens. Oh, yeah. That's great. You can shoot a whole movie like this. Yeah. You can shoot a whole movie like what we're doing right now. Yeah. This could be a scene between between two people doing a negotiation, which every scene is about a negotiation. There you go. Oh, yeah. 
Maybe there'll be a scripted screen heat eventually. We can turn it into like a, <laughs> a dramatic <laughs> limited series. You got to get Oscar to direct. Directed it. by Oscar Tor. Yeah. I love <laughs> it. There Oscar. we go. We just, we just came up with our own idea. <laughs> yeah. You've already, you've already set, set, set our ship going in the big screen. So thanks, Perfect. man. Yeah. This has been great, man. You know, I'm a little sick, but I didn't want to miss this one. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you, man. This is, this yeah. has been awesome. No, Oscar, yeah, yeah. Un caballo, as I like to say. This is like one of the workhorses that's made it to the, the major leagues of the industry. Even though the baseball thing didn't work out, you're you're there, my friend. You're at the top, and I'm proud every time I see you up there, my friend. There so, you Thank you. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. Appreciate yes. it. Appreciate yeah, it. I hope to work absolutely. with you guys soon. We're here. Yes. Back. Ah, the man, Oscar Tori. What an interview. Yeah, he's fantastic. What a great guy. So much great advice. So I hope all of our young actors were listening to that because there are a lot of great nuggets kind of just organically scattered throughout that amazing interview. Man, I'm pissed. I'm pissed because I went to go watch the show and I realized that I dropped stars last month. You did? I couldn't even believe it. Yeah, because I hadn't watched anything in stars in months. And I was talking to my cable company. I'm like, hey, you know, you got me on this package. I don't know. It's this nah. crazy package. I'm like, okay, well, what which one don't you watch? You know, and I was like, well, I kind of watch everything. I don't watch stars too much. Mm. Whoop! And I cut it out. So now I'm gonna have to negotiate. Uh, well, not can I just watch one show? Just give me one show. <laughs> one show. How much is yeah. that? <laughs> no, it's just pretty pissed, man. I uh, went um, you know, on, on Sunday to watch it, and I was like, damn it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I'm going to pick it back up next week because I, I can't wait. I can't wait to watch this show. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah, really yeah. excited, you know, to, to check it out. And that's not just saying I was good. I wanted to watch it. And you heard me in an interview. I, I was waiting for that for a while. Mm-hmm. So that's not saying, any, of course, having a homeboy in there is one thing, but, um, you know, I've really wanted to see this for a while. So right. I'm excited to see it. And man, what a story. Oscar really had a story for us. Oh, he did. Yeah. What a great journey and a journey that continues. And, you know, like I mentioned in just, you know, the Cuban Johnny Depp, but just because of his sheer talent uh, and his ability to disappear into these different roles that he's played over the years, uh, you know, he's just really such a great and refined actor that really understands his craft. Uh, And it's uh, like you said, a homeboy and just so proud to see all the great work he's doing and will continue to do in the years to come. So we're excited not only as an actor, but as he mentioned, as a filmmaker as well with his, you know, uh, talented wife, Judy, who's also an accomplished actor. Uh, the fact that they kind of work together as well as, as a duo to, to create these amazing stories. is just so exciting uh, to hear from someone like that. And so I think that we do need to transition now into the world of Netflix. We teased it, but let's get into the sort of sort of the fallout, as you mentioned before the jump, Kevin, uh, this idea that Netflix for the first time in a decade has lost subscribers and they even went so far as to tell their investors and shareholders that they expect to lose many, many more before making some kind of a, a comeback uh, 
somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million. They did attribute some of that to the fact that they did voluntarily pull out of Russia, where they had a significant number of subscribers due to the ongoing war and conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine. But also, there's other factors at play. They did also have a significant increase in their monthly subscription, which, as you know, tends to have a knee-jerk reaction from subscribers, you know, going from 1090 or 999 a month to 1299 to now 15, whatever it is now up there, 1599, 1599 in a matter of no time at all. Exactly. So I think these sort of sudden jumps in price increase do tend to create uh, the effect of, of getting certain folks to, to unsubscribe. They, I, I believe they also feel like they haven't had a, a really big hit in a while. I know they've had some breakout hits, you know, talk about homeboys, Dwayne, the rock Johnson with red notice, which was, I think one of the biggest film premieres on Netflix of all time. And of course, you know, they have Bridgerton too, which always, which did phenomenal. But, you know, I think that what Netflix has created, the bar is so high for them that they need basically a Bridgerton and uh, basically a red notice every single month. To just well, yeah, yeah. I mean, their yeah. I mean, look, I don't know that model. I'm, look, I love the model of release it all at the same time and then you could binge it all at the same time. But there's a lot to be said about, you know, this kind of slow, slow draw over time that Apple has been successful with. Right. Um, you know, you keep coming back every week to watch a specific show. Mm. This is, it's been, it's been, I guess, successful for Netflix to just drop everything at the same time. But when you have a, you know, boatload of monopoly cash, you, you know, then right. you, you can do that. But, um, that's been successful for Apple and successful for Disney plus. You know, I've oh, I mean, shows. HBO, obviously, they've HBO. carried that model from their cable subscribers, this idea of releasing one show per week. So, yeah, obviously, it's worked for HBO and, and a lot of the major streamers that choose, like you said, to do this sort of uh, weekly release because and I've read this somewhere, too. It creates more of these water cooler moments. It allows your colleagues, your friends, your family to be caught up with you. So you have something to talk about as opposed to binging something. You know, you think about it for a day or two. You might call your friend and say, man, Bridgerton was great. I just watched the whole thing. And then you forget about it and you're kind of on to the next thing. On to the next show. So you have to keep coming up with show after show after show. It's a, you know, home run every time. But if you don't have, you need one every week, Yeah. you know, Netflix, they have quite a few hits, but and those are shows, you know, so shows hits, yeah. but, you know, if you kind of, you know, just draw it out over more time, mm. I mean, Stranger Things is coming up, so that should help right. to punch it up a little bit. But guess what? People yeah. are going to, they're going to sure. watch it, binge it, and then, and then move on. Right. And so. Right. Yeah. So there, there is this whole idea of, you know, what I call too much of a good thing. And I think that Netflix does tend to have that effect. It's too much at the same time. And so I think that there could be some hybrid models they can explore. I know they were talking about maybe having a, a lower subscription that would be ad supported, but maybe, and this is an idea I have, maybe you get the one release a week but if you pay an extra premium, then maybe you can binge the whole season. If it's something you absolutely have to watch, maybe yeah, there's yeah. like unlock, you know, the entire season of Cobra Kai just to cheat get ahead code. of your friend. Yeah, cheat code so that you can say, well, aha, I just watched episode two and you're only on episode <laughs> one. And so th those could be little tricks. Because I think 
you know, this is such a new business model for everyone in the industry that yeah. there and Netflix obviously has the resources to just kind of play with their own model a little bit and kind of see what works. And so maybe again, it's a tiered thing where there's the basic that's ad supported, the mid level that allows you to see one episode a week, and then the highest level, which gives you full access, no ads, and you can binge whatever you want. I don't know. Those are just ideas, uh, you know, so Ted Sarandos and, and the others can take that for what it's worth. Free advice on screen heat. For, what for, advice do you give them on their animation? Oof. Well, you know, and unfortunately, I think we alluded to, remember, I think we talked a little bit um, about Phil Lord and sort of how he felt like animated projects were not getting their due at the Oscars. And I think in general now we see that one of the knee-jerk reactions from Netflix was to immediately pull back on their animation slate, which was very aggressive. You know, uh, we had, uh, I had an MMFM Digital about a year ago, Kristen Murtha, who had just left uh, Warner Brothers Animation, speaking of Chris uh, Lord, had actually worked with them on the Lego movies and became one of the the heads of animation over at Netflix, and she was saying how ambitious their plans were at the time to essentially create an animation company to rival Pixar, and that was their strategy. But that takes time, you know. We know the lead time for an animated feature at the level of a Pixar three is three years. to five years, right? Yeah. Uh, and it just seems like Netflix just doesn't have the patience for it. That's what I'm I'm reading into it. Yeah, and I think also, you know, it felt like they just wanted to get these kind of one offs. They wanted a hit like a big mouth or you know south not really a south park but you know kind of teetering on adult and also kids and you know i watched a couple of the shows and you know they were funny but mm. not knock it out of the park i think that's also you know with their even with their films you know a lot of them same talent big right. name talent but uh sometimes I feel, they feel a little bit rushed. I don't know if yeah. that's, that's what it is. Um, and then also I feel that drawn from a greater talent pool base, because it seems like, you know, it's the same, you know, just cannibalizing the same people. Right. But, um, you know, I hate to see that kind of dramatic cut, especially for uh, something that's near and dear to me, which is animation. Mm. Um, but we'll see how that plays out. I think, they that the genre just has not been exploited the right way yet um you do have your again pixar films are hard to make you know that's three to five years as a reason for that and that's it's not just the animation it's getting the story right right you Even know before anything hit. like yeah you're right before anything is designed or drawn out they spent years on just the storytelling aspect of it, right? Right. Pulling it apart, putting it back together again, right. exploding it, and then putting it back together again. The story may feel simplistic, but they never are. You know, they're complex. Yeah. They deal with a lot of different issues. And so, you know, some of those things just can't be rushed. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, and that's feature films, but even in, you know, kind of smaller episodic based uh, animation. And so with that being said, uh, the genre, you know, animation, I see a bright future. I know there's a bright future for animation. I think that that future has more to do with um, expanding the market in, in a different kind of way. It felt like the exploration was still kind of, you know, the same, you know, trying to replicate this or trying to replicate that. And I think, you know, there needs to be something that really pushes, pushes the limits. So, yes. Yeah. You know, and, and I think we alluded to this in one of the earlier interviews, um, 
about this idea that, you know, Pixar even wrote a book called Creativity Inc., where they spend so much time just on, like you said, that creative storytelling aspect, but that required a lot of patience. And I believe the one thing that the streaming wars is lacking in general is patience. Yes. You know, would they have to churn out so much content so quickly? Well, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, new talent. I'm going to tell you one of my favorite animations is uh, in the past years is this animated short called If uh, Anything Happens, I Love You, Mm. which was uh, co-produced by Laura Dern. It was it was nominated for Academy Award. It's about the school school shooting. You know, the two parents and their daughter, uh, two parents and the, the daughter gets killed in the school shooting. Um, I just gave it away if anyway. Sorry. <laughs> if anyone Damn hasn't it, seen it. the movie. Spoiler was, alert. <laughs> but it's a short film, but you know, it really deals yeah, it deals with a tough subject in, in a way that you know is engaging, endearing, and real. And so you know, if you have and the animation was unique on top of that, you know, I think that that is something that then can be when I talk about expanding the genre. You know, that's something that can be looked at. Mm. Um, So let's just see what happens. I have a couple of things coming out myself. We have an animated film coming out um, in about three weeks, you know, hitting the festivals and stuff like that. And we're, you know, we're trying to, uh, you know, a few different things. So we'll see how we'll see how that all works out. But we're going to leave Netflix alone to get to the star of the show. Mm. One of the biggest stars, Hollywood history. Mr. Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. Jack Sparrow himself. Yes, JD. Johnny Depp, uh, he is in the midst of a quite a, a, a contentious civil lawsuit between his ex-wife, who's also a notable actress in her own right, uh, Miss Amber Heard. And this is something that uh, is, is a, apparently it's a $50 million for those that don't know, civil lawsuit that was filed in Virginia after Amber Heard wrote what was supposed to be an op-ed about an anonymous relationship she had, you know, and, and this idea of domestic violence and marital abuse came up, which he says cost him not only uh, in, in terms of his public figure and persona, but financially due to the fact that he claims and his lawyers that he lost a lot of business, including the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise once that article came out. And this also kind of followed on the heels of another lawsuit, which he lost in the UK after one of the tabloids, I believe there, uh, labeled him a wife beater. And he went to court on that, but they said there was enough evidence to be able to say that, yada, yada. And so now he brought it to civil court in the US. She's, you know, to be fair, counter suing for $100 million uh, as well, claiming that there was also obviously, you know, domestic issues and violence issues on his side as well. And so this has just been a very highly publicized trial. Uh, It's been live streamed throughout. So you can see it as it unfolds on various news networks and online, uh, which is something that Amber Heard's lawyers tried to get removed. They didn't want it televised. His lawyers allowed it to happen. So that kind of shows you who has the most to gain potentially from having airing their their celebrity laundry, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's in the air. Mm. I haven't been watching, but you know, I've been reading. I've been reading. I saw a few things, and I mean, I don't know if this is true, but someone took a dump in someone's someone's bed. 
Yes. Um, that wasn't Johnny Depp. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like I said, it, it's getting really ugly on both sides and just kind of showing this, obviously, things that were probably meant for personal, uh, you know, interaction between a couple that was obviously having tremendous issues, but has been brought into the limelight, obviously, due to their celebrity status and the high profile nature of, of this relationship. And so, you know, it's it's a long trial. I think they still have about four weeks left before they Johnny Depp has taken the stand. Amber Heard has not yet taken the stand, but Johnny Depp was examined and cross-examined. He's had witnesses on his end also testify as to his behavior and her behavior. And so, you know, it's it could be just become a he said, she said. And obviously there's still some residual feelings there about what happened. Obviously, there was uh evidence of of some kind of domestic spats i know he talked about this famous bottle throwing incident where he actually lost a finger a tip of a finger during production of one of the pirates movies that he said initially he tried to cover up to kind of cover for amber but apparently she threw a bottle at him that broke and you know kind of chopped his finger off or the tip of his finger and now he's going back and saying it was actually her not what I had said before, that was an accident. So it's it's very kind of ugly to see that, you know, obviously you know, we live in a very highly publicized age, especially when you're a celebrity of that stature. You know, in the old days, celebrity marriages would start then. You know, that was always the tale. But we never got this much detail, I felt, in the past as we're getting now. And I, I think it's unfortunate. I think ultimately it might hurt both sides. Uh, I know Johnny Depp does want to have his career back and get to that level where he was at. Uh, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, but if... I'm just taking a temperature for it. Look, Johnny Jeb, at this point, he doesn't have anything to lose. So if he loses the case, guess what? He's just where he is anyway. But it right. seems to me that he's coming out on top because there's a, mm. a groundswell of support. And from what I'm seeing, you know, even when you talk about Pirates of the Caribbean, there's so many people that are saying, look, he made that, fran which he did. He made that franchise. They're not going to watch a Pirates of the Caribbean without him. Right. And so what do you do? You know, you win in the court of public opinion, be winning court, you know, and oft oftentimes winning in the court of public opinion helps you to win in court. Hmm. And it, it does feel like a he, he, he wins if it be, even becomes a he said, she said. Now, you know, it's toxicity on both sides. Hmm. Um, look, I looked, I saw this video with Amber Heard. She set up a camera and it, it kind of felt like she was cajoling him, you know, and egging him on. Right. Um, again, I wasn't there, so I don't know what happened on, e on either side. But it does seem to me less what it was purported, which is, you know, Johnny Depp as the aggressor. Right. Solely. The Johnny Depp as the aggressor solely. It seems right. like, you know, both sides were culpable. And so for me, then Johnny Depp, even within that case, comes out with a win because yeah. I think he'll be able to come out with that and still be able to work. And it, it's showing that, you know, his, his fans are coming out for him. Yeah, I agree. And he does have a huge sort of groundswell, like you said, of support, uh, you know, around the world. He's a huge star. You know, he has a lot of support online. And I think that it has opened the door for you. Like you said, even if he doesn't win the case, I don't think for him it's about the money. I don't think Amber Heard is going to pay $50 million or vice versa. But I think, like you said, if there's enough public support for him, you know, 
getting his career back to where it was, I think that there's enough evidence to justify that, you know, uh, that yes, a lot of the times it seemed like he was trying to avoid escalating a situation whereas she was maybe becoming more the aggressor which wasn't revealed in previous court cases and i think now that's become uh sort of something that he can use to try to get his career back and you know and it's it's been evidenced by the fact that you know they pulled him out also of the of the harry potter franchise right the fantastic beasts and showed that the film where he wasn't involved in uh ironically that new star ezra miller has had his own uh tons of over in hawaii so that didn't work out either way but obviously i think that franchise also took a hit just like i think like you mentioned if pirates does decide to make a movie without johnny depp's uh iconic jack sparrow character will also take a huge financial hit so like you said it's better that they don't even make another one i know johnny has referenced now lately that even if disney were to offer him the pirates role again he may not take it Eh. which is eh, interesting Uh, yeah he did say that but you know a big enough offer i don't know he might he might do something down the line. And so, but, you know, he is a great artist, one of the great actors of all time. And so, you know, regardless of what happens personally, you know, that, that is his livelihood. So I, I do understand why he felt the need to take this into where he had to, he felt he had to take it and his team had to take it just because like you said, if he does nothing, he doesn't have a career, but if he can at least tell his side of the story, then he may be able to get at least part of it back. Well, I have two predictions. Johnny Depp gets back in the movies. He's going to be able to get his career back. Will Smith Mm. is going to have a career, too. Mm. Those are my two predictions. You heard it here. Screeny Miami. Well, maybe maybe that's a package right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they'll do a movie together. That's right. Bad boys for (laughs) wife. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, no. The King of Quips is back. <laughs> to be, I read that online okay. somewhere, but I, it was very oh, did you? Okay, <laughs> But it wasn't about what, those that the two. two of them in the movie together? Is that- no, no, that, that, no, that was, uh, and I think that was in a reference just to the Oscars. Um, oh, okay. And it was him and Martin Lawrence, you know, and, uh, and, and Martin was like, kind of like hovering over Chris Rock as he was getting slapped by Will and it said, bad boys for wife. But oh. I think if you put that movie poster with Johnny and Will, it would be just as funny. Um, there you go. Not, not to make fun of, of a light of a, of a serious situation, anything that involves violence, but still, um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think they both may have a shot to, at a comeback in the yeah. near future. Let's see. We will see, and we will see you all next week. Thank you for tuning in to Screen Heat Miami. I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm Jail Martinez. And I got to give you a boom. Dale.